Let's get real. Who wants to have another surface level conversation? Not us. I'm Samantha. And I'm Christian. Two friends having raw but truth-filled conversations about the messiness of life. So buckle up and don't be shy. Because, yep, we're We're going going there. Hello. We are here with a fun guest today. We have Jen Wilkin joining us. Welcome, Jen. Hi. Thanks for having me on. We have all these sweet little Southern accents on our podcast, oh. personally. I'm jealous. Yeah, I'm I know. Like, dang, we in Missouri just sound like yes. normal, yes. flat <laughs> accents. It's boring. Well, you know? I grew up in Arkansas and my parents in Louisiana, so I have lost my accent over the years. But it's so funny because Christian spends a lot of time with me. And every once in a while, I'll say something and it will come out so twangy. It yeah, happened a couple twangy. <laughs> As you say, twangy. And she gives me a hard time. So I kind of I say it. that because Jen yeah. said, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so hi, Jen. We are super thrilled to have you on today. We are huge fans of you and your work and just your passion for reading God's word. So we're excited for our listeners to get a taste of that. If you guys have not done a Jen Wilkin study before or heard of her work, just super like incredible teacher. You are a great speaker. You've come to our home church before for conferences. So we're just thrilled to have you on. So thanks for giving us some of your time today. Oh, yeah. Sure. I was telling Jen before we started, and my Bible study girls would be just heartbroken if I didn't mention, but shout out because we are a group that I've talked about it on the podcast before that we meet just a random kind of group of girls. And we've been doing Jen's studies over the last three years. And it's just been so amazing for me. And the way that you write things to like help lead us, but also put a lot of it back on us to dig into scripture and then watching your videos after. I just love the way your studies are set up. And I feel like they're kind of unique in the women's Bible study sphere. And so I just wanted to say that because my girls would be upset if I didn't, but we're excited to chat with you. And hi to all the girls. And I would never, ever join you for your study time because I heard it at 6 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, commitment. So yeah. yeah. Well, we make it work with all the little kids. It's kind of nice. We all just sneak out while all our kids are sleeping and then we walk into the chaos when we get home. So yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Why don't you just start us off telling us a little bit about you, what you do, your family, work, how do you spend your time, give everyone a little taste of what your life looks like. Yeah, I have very rapidly entered into a next season of life. My kids are between the ages of 26 and 22. And so in the last several years, they have gotten married and begun to produce children of their own. And so I said, when do we stop calling ourselves a family and call ourselves a dynasty? Because I will have, by April, I'll have three grandchildren. Wow. And that Congrats. Will roughly a year and a half. Wow. Yeah, so it's just been really fun to, I have enjoyed adult parenting, like parenting of adult children, but now the grandchildren piece is adding an extra special element to it. What is your grandma name going to be? I was going to ask that. Yeah. I have determined, I've dictated that it will be sugar. I want to be called sugar. Oh, I like that one. We we asked... Courtney Doctor that recently, and I can't remember hers, but we love Cece. it. Cece, yes, Cece. yes. Cece is so precious. And that's something that a small child can actually say. Small children cannot say sugar. So that's why I'm like, no, I will force you. You will, you will call me sugar. <laughs> You're like, I feed you, you sugar. You call me sugar. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is the relationship. My kids were hysterical when I said that was what I heard it at the neighbor's house. This was when they, the kids were like in middle school. And I came home and I said, the neighbors call their grandma sugar. I want to be called sugar. And they were like, mom. And I said, what? I want to be called sugar. Who doesn't want to go to sugar's house? And they were like, but 
mom. And I said, look, call me sugar. And they were like, but mom, you're not sweet. <laughs> oh, you and said, I was take like, it back. I know you're right. I'm not, but I will be with your kids. I'm going to be so sweet with them. And so like, this yes. is my chance to be a yes parent. You know, like mm-hmm. I was like the rules girl with them. And so I'm sugar. Oh, I like that story. That's really, really sweet. So yeah. yeah, new grandmother. So that's a big deal. That's a huge life shift. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's awesome. And then what do you do for work other than writing studies all the time that are so incredible and teaching? Well, so my husband jokes that I have three jobs, but it's kind of not a joke. I do travel and speak, and I also am publishing things at various points. And then I work full-time at my church. I have a role there as well. I serve with responsibility for our next-gen and family and care ministries. So That's awesome. You are a busy lady then. Gosh, I didn't realize you like work full-time and do both of those things. That's like a huge commitment. Yeah. But you know, anything that anybody knows about me outside of my church is because of the work that I've gotten to do inside my church. And I feel really thankful for that. I know there are sometimes people who only have a parachurch existence. And I have been thankful that whatever iteration there is of me that's out there in the broader church is able to be just an overflow because I I think I need that to be able to to generate content. It would be hard for me to just generate the parachurch space, although I really admire and, and enjoy the content that comes from people who do that. I love that you say that, actually, because a lot of our vision and hope for this podcast, too, is to have these conversations here. Obviously, we get to, you know, have conversations with people across the nation, and then also people listen to this across the nation and the world. But we hope that these conversations really touch people's hearts and minds to want to then go deeper in their actual, like, physical community that's around them, because you can only go so far. Yeah, we can only go so far in our DMs with girls, which is great. We can connect that way. But it's like you go out and you have to find that community in person. Yeah. So I love that you mentioned that about your work, too, because I think it's really true. And the local church is like really, really important. So, Jen, to kind of jump in, you are really passionate about teaching young women how to really study and comprehend God's word. And Christian and I have taken that upon ourselves. We kind of just backstory. We grew up in Christian families. Christian's a pastor's kid. And we grew up and about five years ago, maybe a little bit before that, someone actually taught me how to study God's word for the first time. And I felt like I had been kind of lied to in a way my whole life of like, okay, I've been in these small groups. I've been in Bible studies. I've had mentors, but all I've ever been given are these Christian girl devotionals. And I want to have time with God daily, but why does it feel like I don't know what I'm doing every time I go to open my Bible? And so I think that's why I've connected so much with the way that you teach and the passion you have for teaching women how to read scripture. And so would you just tell everyone where that came from? Yeah, I early on entered into women's ministry spaces and found them to be almost entirely resourcing women at the feelings level. And that's not me. Like I don't really fit that profile and I don't, it's not wrong. I want to say very clearly, it is not wrong for all female spaces to address our feelings. Like that's actually a really great thing. And I don't want to speak a little bit of a corrective word to that at the expense of that. Like that is something we should want and preserve. But they were almost entirely that at the point that I entered into that environment. And so the word Bible study was being used for 
any and every gathering of women to open a book of some kind and talk about things related to the Lord. And so one of the things that I really had wanted to do was to reclaim sort of a pure definition of what it meant to study the Bible, not to diminish devotional offerings or to say we ought not to do them, but to say, if we call everything a Bible study, then it is possible. And this is what I was seeing. It is possible to attend something called a Bible study for sometimes two or three decades, only to discover that you have been either told what to think or invited into exploring your feelings, but you have not been taught how to think, and you may not even have real firsthand knowledge of your sacred text at the end of that. And so one of the most common pieces of feedback that I still get to this day, and I've heard for the entire time that I've been teaching Bible study in a way that hands people tools is I've been in church my whole life and no one has told me this. And so women who were, you know, 20 years older than me, when I started this in my late twenties and early thirties saying, how come no one has told me this? So I'd say a similar experience to what you said, Samantha, and we get there when we call everything a Bible study, because here were these women who were like, I did it. I showed up for Bible study. Why don't I know my Bible? And so one of the things I wanted was to help women to diagnose, where am I spending my time in the word? Like, Because if you had an issue with how you were spending your money, the first thing you would do is sit down and say, well, what is my current practice? Where is the money going? Before you would make a budget for where the money ought to go, you would need to assess where the money was currently going. And so with our time and our time in the scriptures, additionally, that's something we have to do. We need to say, well, wait a minute, is all or most of my time going to devotional reading or to topical studies of the scripture? Because if it is, I can just about guarantee you that you are atrophying in your firsthand knowledge of what the Bible says. And we need that. And we also need to know how we should get to not just what it says, but what it means and what we should do with it. We should have tools to do that on our own even as we sit in under the teaching of someone else who might know how to do that a little better than we do. So many good thoughts. So many good thoughts. We are obviously fans of you and your work and what we have learned. And I am thinking about all these things because the number of times that we in our Christian walk say, you know, we complain to some friend about it. We talk to our husbands. We talk to our friends. We talk to a community about like whatever we're dealing with. And someone says like, you should pray about it. We're like, oh, yeah, we should pray about it. And in the same way, we go and read a bunch of books that other people have written about the Bible and their interpretation of different things. And we maybe like make some connections, learn really valuable things like those things aren't bad. But then you have this like almost aha moment when you're like, oh, I never really actually understood, you know, maybe a crisis hits or maybe you pair two stories in the Bible together and it's like, oh, I actually never really understood the character of God because I actually did never read that for myself or I didn't actually ever understand how like the depth or the richness of that promise that God kept to that person because I didn't actually understand that was like, you know, this promise of like from creation, you know, and so I'm like, it's just these little things that I'm like, when you actually understand all of these connections in the Bible itself, and when you get to read that for yourself, it becomes so much more real. And don't we want to be people who like, always go to the Bible and always go to truth before someone else's word or someone else's opinion of that. And so that's why I just love so much about how you teach of you always take it back to, you know, like, where are you in God's word? Where are you spending time in God's word? Not with what other people say about it. 
Yeah. And like what other people say about it matters, right? Like, I mean, when I prepare to teach, I read what other people say about it, but I read those commentaries differently when I have spent time in those passages myself. And not only that, because I do sometimes when people hear, you know, own this yourself, do this yourself, they hear me and my Bible owning it myself. And like, I know, you know, Samantha, you told me your group gathers in the morning and you do this together. And that's one of the ways that I intentionally put the studies together is, yeah, you should own it yourself, but not alone. Like you should be in dialogue with other living, breathing people saying, well, I think maybe it means this. What do you think? Versus just me and my Bible and my good tools, learning how to do it myself. That also is a recipe for disaster. So because we're not, the Bible is not meant to be understood on our own. Now it's not that there's nothing we gain on our own, but the Bible is meant to be processed in community and under good teaching. But we we can't discern what is good teaching and bad teaching or what is true teaching and false teaching if we don't have a firsthand knowledge of what the Bible says, because that's what the false teacher relies on is the ability to pick and choose and to combine things the way that they want and to be able to rely on you not knowing whether they have pulled something out of context or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a girl in our group who now stays home with her kids, but she was a high school science teacher. And we're just constantly like, okay, please, especially in Genesis, we're like, will you explain this? Will you explain this? And just the (laughs) the conversations we were able to have that it's like, my brain does not think that way. Nor did I even think I cared about that. But the way you just explained it brought this to life. And so yes, I love doing that in a group. But I like that. So this study is called Abide. And some of your other studies have been more point blank Genesis, Exodus. And so will you explain what your idea behind studying this idea of abiding and where we see that in scripture? Well, this study is actually not that different from the others. My philosophy of teaching is we should go through entire books of the Bible from start to finish. And so it's actually been kind of funny because especially with the you know, at the time that we're recording this, we're in January and a lot of people were like choosing their word for the year. And they were like, oh my gosh, that's my word. And I, I actually think I may have accidentally tricked people into thinking that this was a study of just that idea. Abide is a recurring theme, not just in John's epistles. Most people know that it occurs in John's gospel too. When Jesus talks about you, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. And John picks up on that theme again in his epistles. And so it's a recurring theme throughout first, second, and third John. So it's a pretty easy hook to give cohesion to a study of all three of those epistles. And it's fun to take people to first, second, and third John, because I love the Old Testament and I love dragging people through books that are 45 and 50 chapters long. And this is an opportunity to not just take them through shorter chapters, but to take them through a different genre. These are letters, right? They're not historical narrative. And they're two of the shortest books in the entire Bible. So one of them is the shortest by word count, and the other is the shortest by verse count. That's the two epistles, second and third John. And so, yeah, it is about abiding because that's what those letters are about. I love that. If you have followed along at all with going there, we did a whole study on Fruit of the Spirit last fall, and it was just incredible for Samantha and I personally. And we talked a ton about abiding. But in these books of the Bible, but also just yeah, throughout scriptures, Jen, tell us a little bit about like where do you see the transformation in people's lives in like their actual physical lives of what looks like when you abide with Jesus? 
Well, the way that abiding is spoken of both in John's gospel and in the epistles relates to some specific things. He talks about abiding in Christ, abiding in the spirit, abiding in the father. So we understand that to abide in our salvation is in some sense to have them as the reference point at all times. So we are meant to feel the comfort of I am in Christ and I abide in him, but we are also meant to feel the challenge of what does it mean when we abide? Is it just simply resting or is it more than that? And what the epistles show us is in fact more than that is is an active thing because John is going to give us these three tests that we can look to if we want to ask ourselves, wait a minute, is this is this really, am I truly a follower of Christ? And the first one is the test of righteousness. In other words, you can know you're abiding in him because you're going to want to do the things that please him. You're going to want to walk in obedience. And then the second test is the test of truth. And that is if you abide in him, it means that you're going to know and love truth. The way that Jesus speaks of who he is, you agree with it, you submit to it and you live your life in light of it. And then the third test is the test of love. If you abide in Christ, it will be evident to all in the way that you love your brothers and sisters. And so abiding is resting and it is also walking out your faith in a way that demonstrates that you know that you are in fact hidden in Christ. I like when you said the active thing, because as we started to talk through this question, or as I was listening to you, I was just thinking about how in our culture right now, I'm sure there's things in every time and age and years that pull us. But right now, it's like there's so many things that I think are screaming at us, like abide in me, like social media is screaming, like abide in me. Like this is where you're going to find everything you need to know or in these relationships or just so many things like political feelings of just like abide in this. Like you can put a lot of hope in this because, look, this is your future. This is what's going to bring either peace or whatever you want it to bring, basically. And I just was thinking about this act of like Abiding, I think, comes off of like just rest and sitting. But I'm like, I think more than ever, it is literally fighting daily. I just picture like this active fight of like constantly pulling myself back to this resting in Jesus. And so I love the idea. And we talked about it in our Fruit of the Spirit series as well. Of like, it's those two things coming together. And you really, I think more than ever, have to be fighting to abide, if that kind of makes sense. Well, I love what you said, too, about the righteousness, because I was just texting a friend prior to this conversation now about something else where she and one of her questions is like, but where's the line? And I think we're people who are so black and white and we just want to know, like, how far can we go until we're like sinning or like how far can we go until we're like pushing the limit? And we all talk about like, well, I think it's a condition of your heart and like, where's your head at? Blah, blah, blah. But I think that's the exact question you're saying, like, no, when we are abiding with Jesus, we will know like am I pushing the limit just to push the limit? Or like we understand and have an understanding of why am I wanting to push the limit? Like I want what God wants for me. So what does he want for me? And that question's not any longer like how far can I go till it's too far? It's no, what's like Jesus calling me to in this? So I think it's really interesting you say that because I think it's such a tempting question that we all want to know in a lot of different areas of life. Well, and you bring up a really interesting thought because we do want everything to be black and white. And there are some things that are black and white, but 
the Bible as a whole devotes a great deal of time to talking about wisdom and wisdom. If everything is black and white, you don't need wisdom. You just do what the black and white thing is. But the fact that there is so much content devoted to wisdom and being able to take the information that we have and make the best call we can should tell us that there are a lot of times where it's not going to be clear. And what we want to be developing is a good sense of how to be wise. And I do think that that is a a major function of wanting to abide in him is saying, I want to have wisdom. The wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. And, you know, as you were saying, Samantha, the more time we spend fixing our eyes on the wisdom of the world as it's brought to us through whatever source that is, whether it's social media or something else, then the less likely it is that we will walk the path of wisdom as it's laid out for us in godly terms. And that's just a reality. We only have so much time to be able to fix our attention on any given thing. And so asking where is the line can be a wisdom question when it's not a black and white issue, but asking where is the line when there is a black and white issue can be self-justifying and we have to know the difference. And again, that's why I think the epistles of John make such a strong appeal to, hey, you have to know truth. You've got to know what truth is because truth is going to inform not just the black and white moments, but also the wisdom moments as well. That's good. So we kind of are talking about how we live in this culture that is pulling our attention and just feeding us lies of like, this will be more satisfying, this will be more pleasing. And what would you say to young girls? It's like, what are some practical things that we can do to kind of push these lies away and really sit in that truth? I mean, would you just say like, just read your Bible? Or like, do you what do you have to say to that? Because sometimes I just want to be like, I have to say it to myself and to other people. It's like, we got to quit with the like tips and tricks and just read your Bible. But do you have anything deeper to offer? Yeah, I do think that reading our Bible is a start. And it's often a place that a lot of us have kind of skipped over. We're like, yeah, 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 I can read my Bible, but I really just need someone to tell me what to do with it. And so what I would not want to say is here's a quick fix, because That's kind of what we have been told all along is I read this book that someone wrote on how to be a godly wife or read this book that someone wrote on how to think about your money or your children or your marriage. And it's not that those things don't have value, but it's that someone else has done the work. And so in order for us to properly appreciate or even weigh the work that that person has done, the underlying assumption is that we actually know what the Bible says about it. And so, yes, read your Bible. But to say to someone, well, you should read your Bible more. I don't for one minute assume that that means they will sit down and have a practice of reading their Bible that is formative in a way that's building literacy, that's building a grasp of the Bible as a whole. And so I would say, yeah, read your Bible repetitively. Take a book of the Bible, start at the beginning, read to the end. And when you reach the end, go back and do that again. Listen to it in different translations. When you go for a walk, listen to that instead of putting on music or a podcast or, you know, budget out your time so that you are sometimes doing that and not the other thing. I think that most of us have not given ourselves adequate opportunity to understand the real fruit associated with meditating on the scriptures through repetitive reading of something. But I can't say that in the first month that you do it or in the first year that you do it or the first two years that you do it, that you will be able to connect it directly to some outcome in your life that got better because that's not how life works. And unfortunately, that's what we sometimes bring to our expectations of a parenting book or a Bible study or something like that. This is a, it's a long game. Mm -hmm. 
Because sanctification is. Yes, yes. Mm. Isn't it so like us as humans just to want to like read a book and get the fix the next day or read a book and learn a quick tip? Or I, I mean, I mean, yeah. And how many things I'm like literally thinking about probably the last time I was on social media, I probably saw four different things that said seven ways to be a better parent mm-hmm. or seven ways to grow in patience yeah. or nine ways to whatever. I mean, the number of things and resources we have that are such quick fixes that we can just grab onto and we're like, OK, I'm going to implement that tomorrow. And it's just really not like that. I mean, we think about anything good in life, and it's easy for us to apply that about anything else good in life, that we know good things take time. But for some reason in our relationship with Jesus or in our ability of reading his word, we think that that's just going to like click overnight. We're going to get all of the goodness right away. And it's no, it's going to take time. And you're going to have to ask other people to join you in that. And you're going to have to, like you said, I love your tip about reading it repetitively, reading the same book multiple times in different translations. That's an excellent way just to get repetition in there because how else do we start, you know? Mm -hmm. This is a question that I just am throwing in. So take it as you will. But you are really passionate also about teaching about women in scripture and That should be like, well, duh, like if we're reading through scripture, we teach on everything we read. But hello, the ladies that helped birth all the Egyptian women and save the babies like that still. I think about that probably every few days. Probably three times now when I've been around you. Because you know what? All of us are sitting at this table saying like we have heard this taught on so many times by male preachers and teachers and This is such a cool way that God worked through these women. And I think some girls who are struggling with the church or have been hurt or feeling like, okay, this Bible is not for me. Like there's nothing in here for me. It's like when we can shed light onto some of these women, you can connect more and you can see that God has intention and plan for everyone. And so what would you say about the way that scripture is taught kind of leaving out women? I mean, not in a weird way of like putting men that are teaching down, but I don't know. Would you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, this is theology is meant to be done in community. This is why the Bible is meant to be studied in community and not just in all pink spaces or all blue spaces, right? We have to have, in fact, you know, I have a podcast where it's men and women in dialogue because we want people to hear that in real time. My understanding of the scriptures is going to be shaped by the way we, we're embodied people, right? Like the three of us are embodied females. And that means that we perceive the world from a particular perspective in a way that is fundamentally different than the embodied male does. Women into adulthood understand physical vulnerability. So, you know, the classic illustration I'll give for this is if I ask my husband, what are you thinking in a dark alley? He's going to say, where did I park the car? If I ask you, what are you thinking when you walk in a dark alley? You're like, I'm hypervigilant. I've got my phone out, pretending like I'm talking on it. You know, and this is because men, generally speaking, enjoy physical dominance, which means that when they grow from a child to an adult, they no longer understand vulnerability the way that they once did. Women never set that aside all through our adult lives. And if you're nine months pregnant, you're even more vulnerable than you are in your adulthood, just generally speaking as a woman. And this is why you see all the statistics about violence against women, violence against children. These are vulnerability issues. And so to say that that will not influence the way that we read the Bible is, in my opinion, a little naive. But not only that, 
it's something we should welcome. We should say, wow, I bet a woman is going to maybe see things here that are more top of mind for her than they are for a man. And you know what? Maybe that's the way we were supposed to read the Bible is in dialogue with one another. And so, you know, most commentaries are written by men. I have overwhelmingly positive relationships with the men in my life. And I'm not interested in male bashing or saying that men who write commentaries are looking for ways to silence the voices of women. I think they're embodied males. And so they read those stories with less interest in some of the female characters and more interest in some of the male characters. That's done some harm, honestly, the imbalance, but I I don't assign motive to it out of hand. But I do see the opportunity that I have as a female teacher of the scriptures is to go, what if we did spend a little more time here, particularly in all female gatherings? What if we spent some more time exploring the significance of that story in particular, Shifra, that stands at the headwaters of the most important story in Israel's history? What if I do have more of a natural interest in it than some of my male counterparts don't? And then those two conversations should meet each other. They shouldn't just stay in their individual spheres. So yeah, I feel like what I'm doing, I'll occasionally be accused of being a feminist, which cracks me up because I'm like, the feminists would not have me guys, but (laughs) thanks for thinking that. But I'm occasionally accused of that because I spend more time on some of these stories than you might find in your typical commentary. I don't see it that way. I see it as an act of rediscovery, as an act of retrieval, that these stories have been here all along. And perhaps we're in a generation where they are more forgotten than they have been in other generations. I like the way you explain that. Yeah, I'm in a study currently. We're taking a whole year to go through Hebrews, and it's just been amazing. It's one of my favorite books. I've studied it before, but in the study, it's a I love it because it's a multi-generational study. So there's women there who are 90 years old. I'm 30. There's 22-year-olds. We are all different, bringing our different life stories and perspectives to studying God's Word together. And I love it, too, because the teacher sits there, and we've done inductive Bible studying. So we're going through. We have our color pencils. We're going line by line. We have the like book printed out. But then we also have a commentary sitting there. We're all sharing. We have a time of discussion. So we read it together. We read the commentary together. We look at a couple actually commentaries. We have the Blue Letter Bible app out. We're looking at that. And then we're like discussing. And it is so dynamic to me because I love, just like you're saying with men and women, like we're not trying to raise an argument of men versus women here. We're just saying that when people read the Bible, God reveals different parts of it to them that, you know, you may read something and something really sticks out to you that you're like, wow, that's amazing. I loved the heart posture that that person had. Like, I really want that. Or you may recognize, yeah, something about God's character. And you may be like, wow, I've never really thought about that and how it ties to this, that different people see different things and how dynamic. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier of like how rich a study becomes when you really get to see all of those things. Like, it's almost like just this big puzzle piece that you're getting to like piece together and everyone kind of has a different thought and perspective And you can go back and forth. Maybe one person has an opinion and you're like, oh, I didn't see that at all. Actually, I kind of maybe disagree. Or you get to dig into it with that. And there's such richness. Yeah, I just love it. It reinvigorates my like love for the Bible, but also just like makes me really excited for studying alongside other people. And I kind of feel like that's what you're describing there. Like there is a benefit and a wisdom that we should be doing this alongside other people. That is wise. And that looks like men and women studying all the things, getting different things from it. Yeah, I mean, the New Testament metaphor of the church as a body, right, with different parts. 
it's not just that we have different perspectives, it's we need each other's different perspectives. And this is a case in point of that. And it's better. It's enjoyable to have those conversations and they're good for pushback every bit as they're good for perspective. You know, I need someone to push back on me and say, are you sure you didn't turn that into more than it was because you love the late stories in the Bible, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That's good. I want that. But in the same way, a woman should be able to push back and say, are you sure that the story of Tamar is saying what you think it is? Because I have a different lived experience than a man reading that text is going to. Well, to kind of wrap us up with this, it's interesting, you know, your kids are kind of in the same age range. I'm 28. I always love to remind Christian that she's already 30 and I'm not. About to turn 31. (laughs) So when you're thinking of your adult children now and just our generation, the girls who listen to our podcast, what's something that you kind of like see in this generation maybe that concerns you or that you would like to see done differently or maybe that even excites you about the way our generation views things? And then what would be kind of like your charge for us or your like challenge or just any insight for the way that we can kind of, I don't know, continue to grow in this love of biblical literacy and leading others in our churches and our local communities, all the things. Okay. So I'm going to tell you something that is a truth that I love that this generation has embraced. And I'm going to tell you something that I think is a lie that this generation is wanting to embrace and women in particular, when I get to the lie part first, I want to say it makes me so frustrated when people dog on your age demographic. Cause I'm like, that's my kids. My kids are that age and my kids are not what you're saying. And so I hear it, you know, I hear that, oh, they're not motivated. They're not this, they're not that. They're always just chasing after their passions. I think that's because your generation is embracing a very important truth. And that is don't waste your life on stuff that doesn't matter. And so you're not motivated by money the way that maybe my generation was. You're not motivated by recognition the way that my generation was. You're like, I want to do something I love and it needs to be important to me. I need to feel it in my guts. It's not enough for me to feel it in my bank. Man, when I think about what that can mean for the church, what I think about what that can mean for families and a whole generation of children growing up in homes like that, I get so excited. And so I think that is so beautiful. And I pray that your generation teaches something to an older generation in the way that that plays out. I hope that I live long enough to see some of the fruit of that. The lie that I see with increasing frequency among not just your demographic, but the one that comes right before yours, because the women who are in their 30s, moving into their 40s, I think it's growing more and more pronounced, is that aging is something to conceal and to push against. And so I've just been stunned by the number of people who have told me I'm in my 30s and all of the women I know are getting Botox. What about your 20s? All of the women (laughs) I know getting Botox. (laughs) Yeah, we don't need to debate that whole thing right now. I know how to get canceled and that is it, right? But I think what we're not doing is asking a more fundamental question and that's the why. It's one thing for Kim Kardashian to say that she would rather eat dog do than age, but it's another thing for women in the church to say that. And so it goes back to sort of what you were saying earlier, Samantha, about where are we abiding? And so I'm a woman who's, I'm about to turn 54. And so people will say to me, oh, you don't look like you're 54. Like, and that's a really sweet thing to say, but also I'm like, I don't actually need you to say that to me. I'm okay with being 54. I don't want to be 30. And I don't mind if you see lines on my forehead and I don't mind if my gray hair comes in because I know people who didn't get to live to be 54. 
And so that's a gift. And I also, I know what I didn't know when I was younger. And so we talk about being pro-life and we speak of that as it relates to unborn babies. But if we are to truly be pro-life and have a whole life pro-life ethic, it means that we can't just say that we value old age as we look at our grandmother. It means that we value old age by not denigrating it in our day-to-day choices. And so we want to be people who number our days rightly. And I'm concerned that a generation of younger women thinks that age is something to conceal rather than something to stare down. And so my prayer would be that you recognize the fear of old age for what it is. It's a fear of a loss of influence and a loss of power. And in many ways, it is those things. But it is the way it's designed to be like as I stand at the cross section, I'm basically middle aged. I'm leaning toward the far side of middle age at this point. I want to pay really close attention to the first half of life and what it meant to gain responsibility and gain freedoms as I enter into the second half of life where I relinquish responsibilities and freedoms. And so we do not want to accept the cultural bias that says you're only valuable when you're young. And so I would just ask your generation to do the hard work of examining motives and choices that relate to the way that we think about, speak about, and feel about the aging process. Hmm. Oh, I was love good, that. Jen. Yeah, I was not expecting was really you to good. say that as I'm just bashing Christian for being 30. Call the outvention on that one. Out. But no, I love that you said that because we've touched on that throughout our podcast and episodes. And it's so hard. Like you said, we don't have to get in the nitty gritty, but it's so interesting that that's what you see because I I could have maybe expected you to say so many other things, but I think at the heart of all those other things I was thinking, it kind of relates back to that in a way. And so I love that. We've had a lot of discussions about it and in our friend groups and our personal lives and just what we see out in the world and how it's like, again, a constant battle of kind of like taking truth into lies that we're being constantly fed and little things that are like, well, it's just this little thing or this isn't that bad or this is taking care of yourself or this is honoring yourself and all these little things that we're told and having to fight back towards. So, well, yeah. And just even going back to this entire conversation, talking about wisdom, really like where are we getting our wisdom from? What wisdom are we caring about and who are we trusting with wisdom? And ultimately, again, going back to God's word, you know, God's word alone being just like our stand firm foundation for where we get wisdom from. And so I just love, yeah, I love that perspective. Something unexpected. Thank you so much, Jen. We will make sure in our show notes to put all of the information of where people can find your new book or your new Bible study and all of your others because we have some of our favorites. So we'll make sure to link some of those there too. But we really appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for all of the wisdom that you shared with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, thanks for going there with us. If you loved what you heard, don't forget to follow along with us at Going There, the podcast. And it also means so much to us if you subscribe to our podcast and shared it with a friend. Talk to you soon. Music